long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University. And I'm joined by the professor of law at Chase Law School, Ken Katkin. Ken, welcome to the show. Trey, it is great to be back. Yeah, I mean, it, it's been a minute for us and we're back. It's almost Thanksgiving. It's that time of year where some of us are getting done with classes. Other of us are getting ready to wind down with classes. And I love fall. So I'm just I'm, I'm in a happy place. I don't know about you on that front, at least. Yeah, I mean, I'm in a I think our semester ends a couple weeks later than yours. So I'm in a very heavy crunch period right now of having to finish my syllabi and get my exams written and all that. But I I will soon I will soon be loving the fall. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's just a great time of year overall. But yeah, no, I, I, I'm happy to have a break and I'm sorry that you have a few more weeks. But, you know, we do get a bunch of stories this week that we're going to go through. And I think the one we're going to start with, Ken, is Israel and the continued war in Gaza, right? And we've talked about this before. The other hosts have talked about it, but obviously some new things have occurred that really needs to bring it back to the forefront of the show. And one of the big things that happened this week is Israel is dropping leaflets warning uh, Palestinians that the conflict is set to move south and therefore need to flee further. Now, as we've already talked about when this first happened, Ken, that's not exactly an easy proposition in part because the Egyptian border is closed. The UN uh, today on Friday announced that uh, uh, Gaza civilians face, quote, immediate possibility of starvation, end quote. Meanwhile, in the midst of all of this, another big unfolding story is that at a major hospital where, according to Biden and Israel, is being used as a base of operations by Hamas. Israel argues that there is a zone into which the hospital staff can move in and out, but staff reporting that is not a possibility because they're getting shot at. Israel is claiming that this is Hamas, while Palestinians are claiming that this is an unjustified barricade of what should be a non-combat zone. So in short, Hamas is using doctors and patients potentially as human shields, according uh, uh, to intelligence with the United States. Uh, and what, the question becomes, well, you got to contend with the nature of such collateral damage, even if that's the case. The exodus south, as I was already mentioned, continues, and now this is without fuel, and so is primarily on foot. As a matter of fact, if you take a look at satellite photos as we speak, crowds of hundreds are trying to pass through checkpoints to be declared civilians, which is not particularly easy to do at the moment. According to the United Nations, there are 800,000 internally displaced people. For those of you who didn't take international relations, those are individuals inside of one state that are being forced to move, but are still in that nation, state, or zone. Uh, Meanwhile, in the United States, protests for Gaza ceasefires have become violent, especially in New York City and in Columbia University. In fact, there are already investigations underway now into some of the anti-Semitism that has been on college campuses. As a matter of fact, this has not been just the exclusive purview of college campuses. Last week, uh, uh, Mike and Jay uh, visited over it and the rare censure of House Representative Rashida Talab 
uh, the only Palestinian American member of Congress, for using the phrase, quote, from river to sea, end quote. Now, Halab and others, the phrase isn't anti-Semitic. In her words, quote, it is an aspirational call for freedom, human rights, and peaceful coexistence, end quote. However, of course, many Jewish people see that as being inherently anti-Semitic, uh, and, and that is a, a huge point of contention here in the United States. As a matter of fact, in response to many of those protests uh, and that kind of uh, uh, language, Arizona State this past week canceled a pro-Palestinian event featuring the representative. So, Ken, there's a lot happening both internationally in terms of what's taking place between Israel uh, and Hamas in Gaza as we speak. Uh, and the international relations between that and Israel, of course, the wider implications of what that appears to be happening in the Middle East, while simultaneously there continues to, I think, be uh, what I don't think a lot of individuals had originally considered, uh, but we had talked about uh, when this first happened, at least the two of us, uh, the American political side of it as well. So, Ken, I turn it over to you to, to start with where you will. Yeah, there was so much there in what you said. Um, I guess we'll start in Gaza. Um, the the I'm a little bit puzzled myself about the leafleting, which you, you talked about. And, uh, you know, I, I say this as someone who's a, a still, as, as I was last time we talked, a, a strong supporter of strong military action uh, to, to end the Hamas regime in Gaza. But I I'm not sure what all these um, movements of the civilians is, is all about. And I, I think the leaflets are basically saying that um, the Israel Defense Forces have uh, more or less completed their military operations in Gaza City, and that's why they're starting to move to other parts of the country. But if that's true, then you would think they should let some of the people from Gaza City come back to Gaza City. If they've, you know, if, 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 if the if Hamas has been routed out of Gaza City and if the Israeli Defense Forces have kind of established security there, um, I'm not sure why not let the people come back. But it seems like they're they're just um, having them move on in, indefinitely to smaller and smaller segments of the Gaza uh, territory. And, and that I don't I don't I don't get that. And I don't I don't think I approve of that. But I, I, I need to understand a little bit more about that. Are, is that how you were seeing it, too, though, is that the the stated reason why um, the, the, the people have already fled south have to flee, flee even further south is is because Israeli military operations in the north in Gaza City are are basically completed and and that's and that's why the operations are now moving south that wasn't yet my reading the the and again this is one where you're you know you're trying to get it uh, at a yeah. second hand but what it appears to be saying effectively is is that it's I would say it's expanding not completed because again if it was completed it seems Highly unusual to say, look, it's going to take weeks to root out these tunnels and the operation bases surrounding yeah. the hospital in Gaza City and then simultaneously be saying, oh, and by the way, we think that we have control uh, yeah. uh, over Gaza City because if they had control over Gaza City, you wouldn't still have active firing occurring around a hospital uh, right. and yeah, Hamas so, wouldn't uh, be in control. I think you're right. So so I don't. I guess I think Israel probably ought to focus on establishing control in Gaza City and not making these civilians keep moving further around in the south. Like if, if they've got the civilians out of Gaza City and they're still engaged in fighting Hamas in Gaza City and routing Hamas uh, out of Gaza City, I, I think I think I would leave the civilians in the south alone. I don't I don't know I don't know what your thoughts on that are. 
You know, it's difficult because one of the things that seems to be the strategy of Hamas to this point is to continue to re and th and this isn't just Hamas. I mean, I mean, let's talk about this in, in, in political science terms and in international relations terms. In certain kinds of asymmetric warfare, when you're dealing with uh, a particular terrorist variants of asymmetric warfare, one of the possibilities is you keep attempting to melt further back into civilian populations, and there's not a really easy way to respond to that. Uh, you know, that's not my particular area of expertise, uh, but e even as the mild student of it I am, there really is no effective military strategy for the you melt back and you melt back. My best supposition here, Ken, is, is that I think the Israeli military is hoping that if you keep pushing the civilian population, you're going to catch more and more of Hamas. But of course, that comes at, at a great uh, collateral damage cost of continuing to move people, as we had already talked about, in a yeah. really teeny geographic space. But that, that yeah, would be my reading. It, I'm not giving that yeah, moral, you know, right. a moral position. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think I, I think I agree with your I think I agree with your descriptive reading, and and I would um, I, I think it's too much. I guess is what I'm thinking that that you know to the extent that um, Hamas is still in Gaza City, and and I think you know they can melt into civil civilian populations, but you know in Gaza City they've got this tunnel network, they've got a lot of arms, they've got uh, a lot of fighters who are holed up there. You know I, I think it's it's. Um, it, it, the first order of business should be to, to to get all of them, and you know now that most of the civilians have, have left the city, um, and and most of the people who are left in the city are are falling into either one of two categories. You're you're looking at people who are obviously infirm and can barely move, um, or else you're looking at people who are Hamas fighters. Um, it seems to me that's that's the place where uh, I'd prefer to see the IDF really uh, fighting. And, you know, if they've rounded up, you know, if they've moved a million people south and all these people don't even have places to sleep and there's, you know, one toilet per hundred people and things like that. Um, yeah, I'm sure it's true that Hamas is blending into those populations, but I think they're less of a threat, you know, blended into those populations than the ones who are still like holed up in their um, in their tunnels filled with uh, with with bombs and rockets and, and machine guns. And, and you hostages. Know, I, I think it's just, and hostages. Yeah. So I think it's just it's more important to to secure Gaza City and route out uh, the Hamas networks that are there. That's more important militarily, I think. And I think, you know, trying to expand it at the same time into the into all these temporary sheltering areas in the south is I, the, the humanitarian cost seems to me to be uh, just too much. Yeah, I mean, it is. And I think it might be easy when, when you think about these things again. Uh, I mean, most people aren't heading to the hospital in, in a regular situation, so you, you you might not be thinking about this, but you're in a really, really vulnerable <laughs> position. Yeah. And and then to be to then be moved out of your house, you've got a few things to have moved by foot because there's no more fuel to be coming through checkpoints to try to prove you're a civilian. Again, I understand what's occurring, but you also have to you you have to at least confront the collateral human damage that is occurring to make that happen. You you just have to. 
Yeah, that's. I think we're on the same page here. Um, but I, I, I do think Israel is doing the right thing in Gaza City. I think in Gaza City, you know, trying to tell all the people to leave and then trying to really do what they can to rout out, you know, the last remnants of Hamas. And that's that's where Hamas's stronghold was. So that's where they're going to have the bulk of their their weapons and their hiding places and their their fighters and their operational systems. You know, so I I, I think I, I think it's good that the Israeli defense forces are are working there. Uh, to make progress against Hamas. But I, I think, yeah, I just think the places that, that, that so many uh, refugees have fled to now, um, I, I think it's it's really not right to keep moving people around into increasingly untenable and, and desperate uh, and dangerous situations. Well, and then that brings us to, I think, and, th- and this is where I think uh, many external Palestinians to kind of link this back to the United States are saying, well, look, it's time to end the conflict. And there I disagree. Yeah, I'm with you there. I don't think it's time to end the conflict. I think it's time to think about ways to minimize the collateral damage on civilians. Exactly. And I think the other thing that this demonstrates for the time being is, is that I also would agree there's, there, there, is not, there is not going to be a way to bifurcate uh, uh, Gaza. And I think for at some point, as you're rightfully noting, once you have the city under control, you move into the rest of the territory and you hold all of it. And that's not going to be a popular. <laughs> that's not right. you, know, you think it's not popular now. Uh, you know, wait until Israel is holding all of the. But I don't see any other way forward because otherwise you're just exchange, exchanging one volatile border for an even smaller volatile border. That's, you know, again, with close, you know, 800,000 displaced people. And, and I, I don't, but I don't know what else you do. I mean, I, I just. What, right. What? I think, I think Israel, the, the two state solution is going to have to be very delayed now. I, I don't think there's a way to move forward with that in the present environment. There's just going to have to be an Israeli uh, military occupation for 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 years without you know without any um uh without any kind of uh uh Hamas rule and I don't think you can get the Palestinian authority in there to rule either I and mean, some people have been talking about that uh to get the Fatah party and the Palestinian and that, authority and that's but just pie in the sky it's pie in the sky yeah. yeah they don't they don't want to do it I mean I think for them if they come in you know backed by the Israeli defense forces they, they would have no credibility with the Palestinian people who live in in Gaza and they'd have no capacity to be seen as a legitimate uh, government there. And and so they don't want that. And I think they, they have been pursuing a, a political approach to a two-state solution. And I I think it would for them, it would be like a, a setback um, to, to play a role um, in administering an Israeli occupation that isn't a two-state solution. So I, I just think that can't happen. Yeah. And, and let's be honest, the the few times and only two times in modern history, I'm, I'm thinking in the aftermath of the British pullout of India, non-contiguous territories won't. And there's obvious reasons they can't easily be singular states anyway. The idea that you were going to have two non-contiguous t- territories ending up being a singular state, in my, in my estimation, was always a... A historic, a political one. 
Yeah, it doesn't work well. I mean, I could probably think of a few more examples besides Michigan right here in the United States. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, you know, the Israel, Israel was actually like that until 1967 because um, uh, the parts of Jerusalem, the you know, the Hebrew University in Jerusalem was on uh, Mount Scopus, and and that was an, a Jewish university that had been there for a long time, and that was in East Jerusalem. And so there, there was, um, during the period of time when East Jerusalem was part of Jordan before the 1967 war, uh, Mount Mount Scopus, which was in it, was was always part of Israel, and there was a corridor. And we similarly had that with Berlin um, during the Cold War. You know, when we had West Germany. Yeah, but um, I mean, think uh, of the, think of the absolute cost of the airlifting at the at for a huge portion of that that made that possible. I, you know, I mean, yeah. Well, the airlift only lasted a few months, and it, it was possible to have a political resolution of it once the Soviets agreed to respect it. Right. So when the Soviets didn't respect it, we had to do the airlift. But for for all but those few months of the airlift, there was just an expressway that the West Germans could take to drive from West Germany to um, uh, to, to West Berlin. And it went through Soviet East Germany, but it wasn't, you know, the Soviets allowed it. And I think you'd have to have something like that. You'd have to have some kind of highway that could connect the two uh, the two discontinuous pieces of Palestine. But, but all of that is far in the future because nobody's going to let Gaza uh, have any kind of autonomy anytime soon, I don't think. No, no. So what about on the uh, on the American side? I mean, again, you know, our colleagues have already really covered the censure, but we've had some additional fallout from that. We've had the additional now violent protests happen in the United States. And, and I think we've had a lot of debate over this phrase from river to sea. You know, is this truly a Palestinian rallying cry that is non uh, non anti-Semitic or is it inherently anti-Semitic? Yeah, I'm on the side of um, inherently anti-Semitic, but I, I can I can see both arguments, right? So I think I think there, there's different things it could mean, although I think all of them ultimately are anti-Semitic. But the the I think the the, the most obviously anti-Semitic meaning, and I think the meaning that Hamas in fact means, is that um, all the Jewish people in Israel should be pushed out of Israel. They should either be killed or they should force to be forced to emigrate. But that that that, that there shouldn't be any Jews. Anywhere in Israel, and and I think that that's a, a obviously anti-Semitic. Um, I, I think that probably that's not what Congresswoman Tlaib meant, and and I think what what Congresswoman Tlaib meant, which which you know I think is still anti-Semitic, but not as much so, is I think it's it's an argument for uh, not for a two-state solution, but for a one-state solution, where um, all all of Israel and West Bank and Palestine um, are um, uh, states where everybody who lives in all those territories is living in in one state and has full citizenship, um, which which sounds not anti-Semitic, except that a, a an, an absolute implication of that is that there's no more um, Jewish state in in Israel, because if you include all those all those people in, um, then you know the Jews are not a majority. And then if you look at what happened in all the Arab countries, um, you know there, there used to be Jew Cairo, Egypt used to be almost one third Jewish. <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah, yeah, now now there's there's zero Jewish people there. You know, it's so. You know, no no Arab countries uh, uh, continued to allow uh, uh, Jews to live there in the post World War II era once they got autonomy. So so I think you know it it seems to me that um, even by um, someone who might have 
a, a vision that is a a, a secular vision, a, a civil rights oriented vision, a, a vision that you know this could be like uh, Ireland, and and people could just decide to stop fighting and live in peace, and everyone could have uh, equal citizenship. And and I do think that's what Congresswoman Tlaib meant, but I, I still think the implication of that is that there can't be a Jewish state, and that in the in the long run the Jews will have to leave. Yeah, and this gets to I think one of the things that's like fundamentally really uncomfortable to talk about. And that is this question, and it's, and it's lingered for a long time in the social sciences and political sciences, and that is, are there cultural connections and prerequisites for truly democratic systems? And I, I think this kind of issue really pu- uh, pushes up against those kinds of questions, because ultimately speaking, there's been a lot of questions to say, well, you know, you could have... Uh, 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 Arab cultures in this case be more democratic, but that has not been historically very successful. Now, again, that that's an argument that is ongoing in the social sciences, and, and but I think that's one that kind of lives. I don't think anybody brings that up because it's a really uncomfortable question. Yeah. But I, th- I, th- I think it lives among scholars, and I think it, for those of us who pay attention, as a question that hangs. And, and, and I think that plays into it, too, because I think Talib would say, well, of course we can be, but I'm not sure everybody else would agree. And I don't mean right. everybody. I, mean, I don't mean universally, but I just mean, yeah. you know, yeah. right. she's she's in America and she's you know, I guess she's in Detroit and she's looking around Detroit and saying, you know, this is a majority minority city and there's a lot of, uh, of Arabs and Muslims here and there's Jews here and there's there's a white minority here, but they don't get harassed. And we can all we can all live together. And and I, I think if you live in Detroit, it could look that way. Um, I, I don't see it working that way in the Middle East. And in fact, um, every single uh, you know, if we look at the Arabs who live in not not in West Bank or Gaza, but the the Arabs who live in the inside the green line in Israel, the, the Israeli Arabs with Israeli citizenship, they, they have more civil rights than Arabs in any Arab country on earth, right? The, the Israeli Arabs have more civil rights than the Arabs in, in any Arab country on earth. And it just seems um, unlikely, you know, that you'd wind up with the kind of um, uh, secular, civil libertarian, uh, liberal democracy um, that I think uh, Tlaib can can see in Detroit, but I, it it wouldn't happen there. And I and to me, the I think it's obvious that wouldn't happen there. And that's why I do think that the river to the sea, um, uh, even in its most optimistic form, um, is celebrating a future um, with no Jewish state immediately, and and ultimately with with no Jews there in the, in the medium run. Well, on that note, Ken, I think we've kind of come full circle. Let's come back around to our next story, uh, which was, of course, the visit between Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping. Um, This is, of course, happened as a sideline meeting uh, in San Francisco for APEC. And it, it signified this week, I think, a really significant thawing in the relationship between the two countries, between the United States and China. Although, of course, at this point, mainly a, a rhetorical one. But I want to I say, I think sometimes when we think about this, people say, well, it's just words. But it, rhetoric is really important when it comes to international re- uh, relations and when it comes to statecraft. And I don't really think it should be downplayed, especially conversations that are walking down military interaction, which is what we did see in San Francisco this week. Zai importantly said, quote, China does not seek spheres of influence and will not fight a cold war or a hot war with anyone, end quote. 
Biden called the talks, quote, some of the most constructive and productive discussions we've had, end quote. U.S. business say that Xi reaching out uh, to be a constructive. The United States and China, of course, are deeply economically linked. As I put it, uh, quote, the number one question for us is, are we adversaries or partners? Referring to the United States-China ties. He would go on to say, quote, if one sees the other side as primary a competitor, the most consequential geopolitical challenge and the pacing threat, it will only lead to misinformed policymaking, misguided actions and unwanted results, end quote. Yet, of course, there is and continues to be unmistakable uh, division and issues. Chief among these, of course, as Biden pointed out in a response to a question after the talks, Xi is effectively a dictator. In his words, quote, look, he is. He's a dictator in the sense that he's a guy who runs a country that is a communist country that's based on a form of government totally different than ours. Uh, and, and, and the Chinese foreign ministry in response to that, of course, was said it was, quote, strongly opposed such remarks without, of course, mentioning Biden by name. And so, I mean, Ken, uh, Ken, on this front, this is something that we've talked about on the show over the last number of years, of course, beginning with the Trump administration, you know, at the, at the end of the Biden administration, when the, uh, the opportunity to try to have kind of a, a uh, Asian Pacific pact in the, in the vein of NAFTA gets shot down, Trump comes into office, we have a ramping up of, uh, of those tensions. And of course, that continued early in the Biden era. This seems to potentially be uh, a thawing of that. Uh, and, you know, we've already talked internationally speaking, of, of course, about the kind of the military implications of th- some of this. So, so what do you see as being important as came out of this meeting in San, San Francisco, if anything? Yeah, well, I guess our listeners will be uh, upset with me because I agree with you again. Um, (laughs) I think thaw is a great word. Um, I guess it seems to me that, um, you know, one thing was that uh, this time out, um, uh, President Xi, you know, came here really because he did need um, a a few kinds of concessions from the United States. Um, and so, you know, it, 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 it wasn't something where, you know, I think in, in recent years, you know, besides just Trump's general attitude towards China that he he didn't want to have a good relationship with China, I think also, you know, China at a certain, you know, if you go back even before that, they were, um, their, their economy was just this kind of miraculous thing that made them not need not need us as much as we needed them for a while, and uh, I think that has turned a little bit. China needed to get more um, U.S. investment uh, back into China. Um, it's been dropping off faster than was healthy for China. Um, China needed to you know get um, uh, us to modify some technology export controls a bit. You know they 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 have not been able to make some advanced semiconductors or uh, artificial intelligence um, uh, products that they that they 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 really would like to be able to make because we've had too many export controls that have prevented them from getting that technology. And so I think, you know, because, because, uh, uh, Chairman Xi or President Xi came here, um, you know, wanting to get some concessions. He had to be somewhat conciliatory. And so I think that leads to, um, uh, the thaw. I, I thought that Taiwan issue was probably the most interesting to me because he definitely was willing to say that, uh, China, 
has no plans to militarily uh, attack uh, Taiwan, which was a good thing. But he also, you know, kind of couched it in language that, that you know, but we ultimately are going to need to have some kind of political settlement in the long run where Taiwan does come back to China, you know. And, and so I think he definitely was not relinquishing China's territorial claims on Taiwan, but he was reassuring that they're not going to pursue those with um, short-term military action. And, and, you know, that had been a concern for a little while, I think. So I think that's progress, but it's not something that totally resolves the issue. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that we I see what two years ago, I, I think that was our top story. <laughs> you know, we, yeah. we were we were talking about that because of the of the of, of we were even speculating on, you know, what that might look like. And, and one of the things that we said at the time that I want to bring back, and I think this indicates it and, and you were stating it well, is that when you need to have economic economic ties lead to more diplomatic peace, generally yep. speaking. And, and and we talked about how the opposite of that was happening before, and now we see this potentially going the other direction. And, and I think that's the sign that this is likely to be a little stickier, that this rhetoric is important and that, that it matters, is because to make those t- t- ties to con- continue to stick, that's what you're going to have to do. And, and I think that's one of the things that, eco- or excuse me, I should say international economic liberals absolutely got right, right, was that this is one of the best ways to not have conflict, although it's difficult in the moment, right? How, how much economic connections are you going to have? But of course, as you can build those, you fix a lot of the political problems, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's right. The the more the more that we are economically interdependent on each other, the less likely we are to go to war with each other. You know, and that was actually you know the origins of the existence of the European Union is in that same concept. It it started as the European Coal and Steel Union, and the the idea you know shortly after World War II was that you know the industries that are relevant to war making um, should be um, so under international control and so interdependent dependent on each other, um, that, that none of the countries are really even able to, to gear up their war making industries without, um, you know, without all the other uh, countries in Europe uh, being part of that. And that would make that, that, that economic interdependence in the coal and steel industries would make war kind of materially impossible. Um, we're not going to be that interde- interdependent with China, no. but I think to the extent that we have the, um, uh, the, 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 a lot, you know, to the extent we keep a lot of money invested there and, and our consumers depend a lot on uh, Chinese production and China depends on us for the the technologies that they can use to 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 to, to power their industries and to make products um, it, it hopefully should lead to um, uh, you know the, the kind of disputes that we could have being um, kind of uh, um, aired out on the on the field of um, economic negotiation and not military action and yeah two years ago when we were talking about this China was actually sometimes filing rockets across they were firing rockets across yep. Taiwan to kind of demonstrate you know that they could and I think it's it is huge progress to to hear uh, the the president of China say they're not going to do that anymore. Well, and, and then the not be doing <laughs> yeah, not right. do it. Yeah. Uh, so I, I guess the last thing here that you really have to think about, and, and I think this is where there is still some posturing among uh, politicos in the United States, and that is 
how much ought the United States kind of embrace this rhetoric? What's the what's the safe point? You know, how much is this just to get technology? And I, I've begun to answer that question, but I'm, I'm curious, you know, where do you view that, Ken? In terms of what um, what technology should we let them have and what technology should we embargo? Well, I, I guess I guess part of that is to say how much past the talking should thaws continue? I, I think that's where I see there being yeah. debate right now. Um, well, uh, I, I think that um, they are, you know, there are actual concrete um, uh, negotiations on um, uh, uh, um, things like te- te- technology embargoes that um, so that's that's not, you know, that's not just the, the talking that's that's going to be, um, you know, that's going to result in trade agreements, um, which will be uh, uh, implemented. Um, I, I don't I don't know. It's hard for me to know what comes next, but I. I, I think I think the more things are moving in a in a de-escalatory direction, the more uh, you know the, the the more that'll that'll kind of become a snowball. I hope, anyhow. I hear that. I hear that. Well, why don't we move on uh, to our next story then, Ken? Uh, and that is the House, the Senate, and the President uh, passing and signing a laddered continuing resolution to give temporary funding. Uh, uh, to government. So this past Wednesday, uh, the House and then the Senate gave final approval to that funding ladder that will extend budget talks into next year. Uh, Overnight on Wednesday, the Senate met and passed the bill overwhelmingly 87 to 11, despite a couple of senators hinting at the possibility of a filibuster. Nothing of the sort ended up happening. Now, what the continuing resolution does is it keeps the government funded at current levels for approximately two more months while a long-term package is continued to be negotiated. Now, what makes it a little bit unique is that laddered part. And if you haven't been living under the rock, what you know that means is, is that there are now two deadlines, January 19 and February 2nd. So certain items of government will cease to have funding on January 19 and others on February 2. Now, the bill, importantly, also does not include any other spending items. And and most controversial, of course, was Biden's $106 billion request for wartime aid to both Israel and Ukraine, as along with humanitarian funding for Gaza. Now, Mike Johnson has been pretty clear uh, leading up to that vote, because, of course, the House immediately went into recess after taking its vote and has gone home for the holidays. The time to create a final budget, in his words, is now. But this, of course, puts Speaker Johnson in a pretty difficult position. Because to get that current bill, that laddered uh, uh, continuing resolution passed, he needed Democratic votes, which he got. But like McCarthy before him, this is not the end of the issue. He's going to need a procedural majority moving forward. And so we kind of return to the fundamental problem and we return to January 19 and January 2. And here's where I kind of see it. Democrats want to increase spending across a number of items, largely in this cycle for foreign policy, uh, Israel and Ukraine. The uh, Republicans, while they might be okay for Israel, have, have pretty kind of entrenched on the Ukraine side. And they also, Democrats, really don't want to cut any spending. Republicans are more uniform when it comes to wanting to bring spending down. They want to have spending cuts. 
but they're very deeply, deeply divided over how and where those cuts should look. So when I'm looking at the Congress right now, Ken, I don't really see a majority for anything because you have Democrats who don't have a majority, but they want, some, they want spending increases on a number of items. You have Republic, some Republicans who want spending decreases in particular areas, but not others. You got a few that it's just kind of difficult to say what they want other than just nothing. I don't know. It's hard to say, but not the same things as other Republicans. And so I just don't see a majority forming at this point. Now, at the same time this week, we have the ongoing issue of what U.S. spending is going to mean. As a matter of fact, this week, Moody's agreed with my assessment earlier in the year uh, that as a result of increasing bond prices, uh, a sign for creditors that see the U.S.'s $33 trillion in debt as a worse bet than it was before. So how does this tie into the conversation? Because the status quo, so even if we don't change spending, is going to be more expensive. Moody's model shows that by 2033, 25% of federal tax revenue is going to be going just to national interest payments on the debt. That is up from this year of just 9%, which is high historically, but a far cry from 25%. This change is what has moved us from a AAA status to a AA+. Now, if you take a look at the, uh, at the Treasury's monthly statements, that means that the U.S. spent more this past month on gross interest than it did on national defense. That's a huge change. I mean, the biggest items in our budget are defense and fixed uh, uh, non-discretionary spending. So it's likely that as interest rates continue to raise, because again, we're attempting to keep the currency stable as we've talked about on the show, that means, of course, that the federal government, the United States, is going to have to continue to pay more on those loans. So you have this ongoing issue in Congress at the same time as even the status quo is going to become more problematic. And I just don't see anything making that an easy issue. As a matter of fact, the Wharton Business School uh, made a report this past week. I thought it was really interesting. Uh, under current policies, according to Wharton, the United States has about a 20 years for corrective action, uh, after which no amount of future tax increases or spending cuts can uh, avoid a default at the rates of interest rates. So that is, in other words, uh, 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 debt monetization producing significant inflation. So we got those kind of two issues coming together, Ken. There's kind of my take on it. What do you think? You know, I think the, um, you know, the, the downgrading of the credit, um, although, of course, you're right, it has to do with the, the, the mushrooming of, of the debt. It also has to do with the political gamesmanship from the Republicans in Congress and the fact that they, you know, we keep having these near government shutdowns. We keep having threats to um, not uh, increase the, the debt limit. And that kind of thing uh, plays a role in, in making the United States less credit worthy um, on the on the on the issue that you that you've highlighted, though, that which is that the, the debt keeps growing. Um, I, I do think tax increases are the only way out of it, um, as well as uh, um, uh, increased efforts at collections um, of taxes that are already owed, which is something that strangely the new house has made, you know, their, their number one first thing. Yeah. They want to, they want to get rid of the, the branches of the IRS that try to, uh, collect unpaid taxes. Um, and which, which already right now today bring in a lot more money than it costs to keep those, those offices open. So, 
Um, you know, we we had you know m under most of the Republican presidents that we've had, we've had tax cuts and we have not had corresponding spending cuts. Um, uh, and you know, under under Clinton, we had some tax increases. Under Obama, we had some small tax increases, mostly associated with the Affordable Care Act. Um, but you know, I think we will need to get tax rates um, somewhat closer. Uh, to where they were, um, you know, at least in the Reagan era, or maybe even in the Carter era, um, if we want a way out of this. But I, I think that will have to be done, um, you know, in in smart Keynesian ways, uh, where we are sensitive to where we are in, in the business cycle, um, when in terms of the timing of any tax increases. I mean, I, I recognize and I understand there is plenty of Republican blame, but I, I don't see even in the minority Democrats. Had they had a few more seats, I don't see them suddenly saying, "Okay, well, we're going to rein in spending slightly uh, and increase taxes." Uh, again, this particular cycle, they're they're looking for a larger spend across the board, and they're doing that in a in an era where it does not it's just not it's not going to happen. So I don't see Democrats being any less intransigent. They just because they're a couple of votes shy, uh, their intransigence isn't the primary driver at the moment. Well, I know, but I mean, they have to do it that way because they're they're in the minority uh, and they well, I guess at least in the House, they're in the minority and they, they have to take a negotiating position. Um, but when they actually were in a position to pass legislation, if you go back to the, you know, say 2010, when the uh, Democrats passed the Affordable Care Act, that's that's a huge amount of new spending. But it was it was fully paid for by by new taxes. And I think when, when Democrats have been uh, uh, in the position to be the governing party. Um, they have uh, tried to follow pay-as-you-go type rules and come up with f funding mechanisms for the for the spends. But I think I really think it's only the Republican. You know, if you think well, the Republicans tend to like to cut taxes and the Dems uh, tend to like to increase spending. Uh, well, when Dems actually control the government, they they come up with funding mechanisms for the increased spending. But when Republicans control the government, they don't come up with uh, any ways to pay for the tax cuts. Well, but again, if they were paying for all of it uh, at this juncture, right, we wouldn't. I mean, all of the deficit spending we have is not singularly the result of tax cuts. I think it is. Ooh, why, I mean, why do you think it isn't? Well, I mean, we could. That, I mean, that's that's one I have not. We can we can research that one. We can actually take a look at that one. That that would be interesting. We should maybe we should do that and, and come back to the show. I you know I don't want to I don't like blowing things I mean, as, out of my as, rear. As, <laughs> yeah. as, 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 as recently as recently as uh, the the late nineties, um, uh, the 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 budget was in surplus, right? So if you look at the question, how how did the budget? Well, the late nineties that would have been you're, you're talking about the era of republic. That, that's when you have a Republican Congress and a Democratic president and Clinton. Yeah, yeah, right. With with Gingrich and Clinton, so you they, mean you they more Gingrich than who's doing that part. I mean, again, with his own issues, right, but right, nevertheless, yeah. not not Democrats. Well, it, he negotiated with Clinton, and they, you know, they made they did both tax increases and spending cuts. And part of that were the tax increases that uh, Clinton put through in '93 before Gingrich took over in '94. Um, and then after after Gingrich after Clinton put through tax I increases with a Democratic Congress in '93, that probably helped the Republicans get the House back in '94. But they um, then they did spending cuts, you know, to go with the tax increases that just happened. And so that that then you get a you get a balanced budget in the '90s and a surplus budget in the '90s. But then you know ever since that's the then, last time you have that. Let's see. Yeah. yeah Sorry. Yeah. Continue. 
Yeah. I say ever since then, I think it's a pretty straight line that, um, you know, you had, uh, you know, the Bush tax cuts and the, the Trump tax cuts and all of those are unpaid for. Whereas um, at least until you get to the pandemic, which actually is on Trump's watch, um, you, you get um, the, the um, when the when the Dems do any any big new spending. Uh, it's 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 paid for. Um, now I think with both with both Democratic and Republican presidents, that's not always true if there's unexpected emergencies. So I, I don't think the um, I don't blame Bush that the the Iraq War or the war on terrorism were new spends that weren't paid for because I think that you know we needed to make that spending and it wasn't anticipated. Um, and similarly, I don't blame Trump for the um, the pandemic spending. But I think if you if you have to you know if you have situations where, you know, maybe either party is going to suddenly spend when there's a sudden emergency. But but excluding that kind of situation, you know, I think when Dems have had ambitious spending programs, they have been paid for. But when Republicans have had ambitious tax cutting uh, programs, they have not been paid for. So, I mean, again, this is not my best uh, uh, work. You know, this is not my best research paper ever, but it does not appear <laughs> that you have a similar uh, in the era of, Ob- uh, of uh, uh, Obama and Democrats controlling, they do not actually get to a similar surplus level during their period. It increases in terms of deficit during their era. Now, again, that's a really you know brief one, so we'd have to talk about those long terms. But yeah, no, you, you, you don't get that during the Biden era. So although they, it does appear that they pay for that one particular item, they they are not paying overall in the way that you saw in that the last time you have actually a true serp and again heads up getting this from uh, bipartisan the bipartisan policy uh, 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 center um, to be clear it, it would appear again you've got to go back to the '90s when you have Republicans and Democrats negotiating together uh, specifically Clinton and a Republican Congress under Gingrich. Right, but the deficits under Obama mostly go down every year. They don't turn into surpluses, but they mostly go down. It's not true every year, but it's true more years than not. That during yeah, no, the Obama it's not years, universal. It, yeah, yeah, the, def- the deficits mostly decrease during the Obama years from what they were, like each year just compared to the year before. That happened, in, uh, that happened in um, uh, 2010, 2011. Well, no, 2011 was the same as 2010. But yeah, no, that's even. But then decreased in 2012, decreased in 2013, decreased in 2014, decreased in 2015. Goes up again in 16 and 17, um, and a little bit in 18. But but overall, yes, you're about half and half, I guess. There. Yeah, and when and when Biden, uh, I'm sorry, when when um, Obama comes in. You know the the um the, we have the financial crisis that year, of course, so that increased the deficit. But he's got you know he's 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 basically inheriting uh, um a deficit. I'm trying to see what units these are denominated in in billions. So he's got a he comes in with a 1.4 trillion dollar deficit, and uh, um but you know even after it when it gets to its low point in uh, 2015, that's that's about a third of that at 442 uh, billion. And then it goes back up to seven hundred and seventy-nine uh, billion by the time Obama's out, but still about half of what he came in with. So I, I think the deficits mostly did both most both more years than not, and in terms of comparing the the beginning to the end of his time in office, um, I think the Obama years don't look bad from a deficit standpoint. Well, I mean, he does end up. Let's see. So Obama's budget deficit more than doubled his inherited projections from the CBO. So during his time over the the course of it, 
he is double what the CBO would have forecasted at a neutral rate. When you well, you're just talking about in, in 2009, or are you talking about for more than just 2009? For the, for the, for the totality of his, um, for the totality of his time in office. Well, how, I mean, that means they're doing their budgeting wrong. How can they, you know, how can they project deficits? I mean, if they're projecting deficits over an eight-year period, and the deficit's always twice what they project, that can only mean they're doing their projections wrong. Well, I mean, again, that would be when I, again, I'm going to have to say, I have to look at that a little bit more. I'm quickly trying. Yeah. That is not my forte. Just let me resolve. I am the guy who needs a lot of time to read and think about things. <laughs> right. I well, I mean, 20, 2009 also, it's a very unusual year, the year that Obama comes in because it's, you know, the, the, all the, the financial system bailouts happen. So there's a, um, because of the financial uh, crisis and the bailouts, you know, most of which were signed into law by Bush on his way out the door. Uh, but I think rightly, I'm not criticizing Bush for that. I think it's it's good that they that they did save the financial system. But that means that when Obama comes in, um, we have a you know because of an unusual emergency, an unusual deficit that year. So of course that's going to exceed anybody's projections. But it, but I, I still stand by my claim, and anybody could look it up. If you look at the Obama years. Um, the budget never comes into surplus, but most years the deficit diminishes as compared with the year before. Well, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to take a look at this and we'll have to maybe either in Discord, uh, uh, take a look and uh, share all this. And maybe then when we get back in December, we'll have to kind of uh, uh, circle back and, and revisit the Obama, uh, excuse me, the uh, Obama uh, uh, spending and how that takes a look between Democrats and Republicans. I'm genuinely interested in that. Uh, I, I, I agree with some of what you're saying there, but I, uh, there's a few things. But again, I'm not I need more time. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't we uh, 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 move forward a little bit, Ken, and talk about, well, more things in the House this time. Uh, but, you know, we've talked about George Santos a few times. And this week, the House House Ethics Committee found that he, quote, blatantly stole, end quote. That's from this massive report, his own campaign. So let's put it in the words of the the ethics committee. Representative Santos sought to fraudulently exploit every aspect of his House candidacy for his own personal financial profit. It goes on to say, quote, and blatantly stole from his campaign. It warrants public condemnation, is beneath the dignity of the office, and has brought severe discredit upon the House, end quote. This includes, quote, knowingly causing his campaign committee to file false or incomplete reports, end quote. Now, we've already discussed on the show, uh, New York federal prosecutors have charged Santos with an array of crimes, and he's pled guilty to 23 counts. Uh, uh, In response, Santos released a very fiery defense of himself. But then a little bit later on Thursday, he announced that he would not seek reelection next year. In his words, quote, I will continue on my mission to serve my constituents up until I am allowed. I will, however, not be seeking re-election for a second term in 2024, as my family deserves better uh, than to be under the gun from the press all the time, end quote. So earlier attempts uh, at attempting to expel Santos has failed. However, Ken, this past week, they've picked up a lot of steam. Last go-round, one of the arguments from many on the right and a few on the left was that it w- he needed to have due process. 
But now many of his former supporters have saying, you've had your due process. Now we have a report. And it's particularly bad. Uh, as a matter of fact, just this week, nine new Democratic and Republican, primarily Republican uh, House members have come out in support of expelling him. That's a big deal. This does not happen. So, Ken, what do you think about, I mean, obviously he, he's sleazy and all I could think about was, I mean, his family deserves better than him potentially, but in all seriousness, uh, what do you think the likelihood of actually Santos being expelled is, or do you think he's just simply going to go into the, into the history books as a one-term terrible House member uh, and, and highly corrupt? I think he'll be expelled. Um, I, in fact, I think the the couple weeks out that they scheduled the vote for, um, you're only you know they picked the right amount of time um, to how how long they thought it would take to pick up the votes that they need. I, I I think the momentum is moving in that direction. There's already you know there's already a majority to do it, and they've just got to get over that uh, two thirds mark. And I, I think it will happen. It's it's very hard I think for anyone to articulate a reason why they wouldn't vote to expel him. Yeah, I, I mean, again, you don't generally get quite s such strongly worded uh, 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 committee statements like this, and it goes on. I mean, I don't know much of it you read or not, uh, but but it is detailed and, and it is straightforward. Yeah, I mean, he probably missed a chance uh, earlier if he would have um, negotiated a, a plea agreement in some of his criminal cases. It probably would have been something of, of value for him to offer to resign. You know, if part of his plea agreement was, well, I'll, I'll resign my seat in Congress if you, you know, go light on me. You know, he probably could have. That probably been, would have been worth something in a plea negotiation. Now I think that will be worth nothing because everybody knows he's uh, he's out. You know, I, I think I think he he's going to be. I think he'll be out within a few weeks. Yeah, I, I, I was wondering about this, and maybe this will be our big disagreement. I would like to think that he's out. The only thing that I think might end up saving him is by the time everybody gets back, we're going to be in the midst of attempting to not get to uh, uh, January, <laughs> two weeks yeah. into January. So the, 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 the wild card, I think, for him is the fact that you have all of these other items that as terrible as his actions are, are going to take up more oxygen, and he might be able to therefore slide along <laughs> for a while. Oh, maybe. I thought you were going somewhere slightly different. I thought you were saying going to say that because someone's going to need his vote for something, they're not going to want to expel him because there's all these close votes. Although I don't, I don't think I don't know that that would happen because I actually think that um, both uh, um, you know the new speaker and the the Dems don't want the government to shut down. Uh, some some Republicans do want the government to shut down. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's very hard. I, I think it's 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 hard to see how that would save him, I guess. It's hard to see how his vote would save him, given that given that the, there's a, a not a straight partisan split on this issue. No, I agree. I, I don't think that what saves him is a needed vote. What I think might save him is just the time needed to make those things happen. Right. So that wasn't a suggestion to say yeah. that, oh, you know, we're going to be dealing with this vote. Uh, I'm just wondering about the crunch. When they come back, the amount of distance they're going to have, you know, how close we get to, the, you know, to the two weeks into January. That's what I, that's what I'm suggesting. Yeah, no, I hear you. That might be right. But I think they did schedule it. So um, they scheduled a vote so that, you know, and once it's scheduled, I guess people could speak on the floor about it if they want to. But I, I think probably not that many people will want to speak on the floor about it.
I wouldn't. So I mean, quite, I would just yeah, want would, to have my. I just. I would just want to have my vote on the right side in case I wanted to put that up in a campaign ad at the end and not get attacked. Yeah. But I'm not. I mean, I mean, the the statement has. I mean, it speaks for itself. I, I don't know what you win yeah. by either piling on or defending. I mean, right. even if you wanted uh, yeah. to defend him, why would you want? You wouldn't want to say well, that on, right, the, on right. the House floor. Yeah. I'm, I'm saying the same thing as you, but I'm, I'm I'm saying that actually means that it doesn't cost them that much time to okay. take this vote. <laughs> In other words, it would be a little quicker. Like, listen, okay, we're on yeah. agreement. Yeah, pff, moving on. Yeah, let's, uh, let's do it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like it, it 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 might it might you know just take an hour of legislative time to to get this vote cast and counted, and it might not take much more than that. Well, and then we're going to have to change a lot of textbooks. But, uh, you know, Ken, so we're, we're kind of running low on time. But there, there was yeah. one last story I really want to get to. And there's probably not a ton to talk about here, but it's something that w- the two of us have covered repeatedly. And that's the Supreme Court and its code of conduct. I mean, the two of us have happened to just always be on the weeks. I, I'm appreciative of this. This is one of my areas. So we've just happened to always be on on the weeks where we've had some of these scandals at the Supreme Court level, right? And, you know, we, we talked about, I, I, was, I was ready to be really sympathetic uh, for, uh, for our conservative justices uh, 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 on the court. And, of course, there, there were some issues there. We took a look at that and talked about this. On Monday, of course, though, the Supreme Court issued a seemingly universal statement without any signed uh, but adopting a code of conduct. Now, we had already talked on the show about this, Ken, that to this point, there had been ethics codes, and but those ethics codes only applied to the federal bench underneath the Supreme Court. And effectively, the Supreme Court's new code of conduct is just kind of a, as they said, largely a codification of principles that have already voluntarily been used uh, to outline what they do. Now, the, 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 inner, the, the, the kind of giant question mark that continues to linger, of course, is there's no enforcement for this code of conduct. And further, it appears, although it's not explicitly stated, that the, the code of ethics that's being pre- uh, uh, presented here and it came out on Monday would have included all of the behavior that we've already covered, meaning that it all of that would be okay. It doesn't say that explicitly, but that, that seems to be strongly suggested in this. And so that's led congressional Democrats to not back down from their push to enact legislation, arguing effectively, look, until you pass something like the Recusal and Transparency Act, excuse me, the Supreme Court's Ethics Recusal and Transparency Act, uh, that has a me- method, uh, uh, mechanism to investigate violations of the Code of Conduct, that this Code of Conduct is really just kind of a smokescreen. Now, I'm going to guess that you probably agree with that. I mean, my guess is you're going to say something like this, Ken. You're going to say, look, of course, a corrupt Supreme Court would release a corrupt (laughs) code of conduct. And and this is just a way for them to attempt to continue to do corrupt things. But but maybe I'm wrong. So how how well do I know you? Yeah. I I mean, the the one thing that I will uh, add is that I, I think that the Supreme Court's corruption is deeper than just the kinds of things that these ethics codes address, uh, because I think the the besides like actually taking bribes, like it looks like Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito maybe have done, um, you know, others may not have done that. But I I think the corruption is more just in terms of um, deciding cases 
based on you know which party is on their team and which party is not on their team. But that that kind of thing wouldn't necessarily even be covered by these codes if they're not um, receiving uh, any any uh, personal benefits or bribes. So I think there's there's a deep problem with the Supreme Court. And I also think that if if they put out a document and they say we've actually already been complying with this document and it's just now we've made it more transparent. Um, well, the things that they've already been doing, you know, particularly again Thomas, but also Alito, are, are very obviously um, unethical. So they're they're actually advertising that this is is not a, a legitimate ethics code. If they're saying, you know, we we're already in compliance with the stuff that's in this code, um, and that includes like letting letting donors uh, buy the houses that our mothers live in and and keep our and keep paying the mortgage payment and sending our sending our sending sending a justice's nephew to private school and you know this kind of thing that. that that, you know, if they're saying that that kind of stuff, which is done and which hasn't been disclosed, is consistent with the code that they've that they've just issued, then you'd have to say, what kind of code is that? Yeah, again, I, I was prepared to support Tom, uh, Clarence Thomas, and uh, you know, I, I couldn't find a way to do that. I, again, I, you know, we had talked about this, and, and we and this is where we had some disagreement. I, I saw there being some deep di- differences with Alito. But you're absolutely right. I mean, if it includes the things, half of the things that was happening with Clarence Thomas, there, there's a fundamental problem. But I guess we'll have to see what continues forward with that. It is historically a big deal that the, that the Supreme Court is issuing this. And the fact that they're universally issuing this means that, if, that, they re, that, that there is a recognition that it's kind of one of those, you want, you're trying to take an action to prevent yourself from being adjudicated elsewhere. <laughs> right. And, and I think that's probably the biggest takeaway from what's happening this week. Yeah, I mean, they may not have been seriously worried that Congress was going to legislate. I, I, I think they may have been equally as worried about just popular opinion. But they 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 certainly felt like, you know, they need to do something, you know, maybe because they're worried otherwise Congress will do it for them. Or maybe they're just worried that they're going to keep uh, going down in the public approval ratings forever unless they try to take the bull by the horns and, and make it seem like they're doing something. But I don't think they did too much. So I'm, I'm not impressed. Well, I think there, uh, Ken, we need to wrap up the show. Uh, thanks for joining me. Yeah. Oh, you know, I just want to say one, I looked one thing up since we talked about it. When you said we'll be in the history books with Santos getting expelled, that that's true. But he, he won't he won't be the first or even the second um, or even the third Congress member expelled in, in my lifetime. I'm a little older than you, but um, Jim <laughs> we won't say how much. It's OK. It's yeah. OK. <laughs> Jim, Jim Trafficant was expelled in 2002 when we were both alive. And uh, Michael Myers was expelled in 1980 when when you may not yet have been born. But I certainly was. Um, but he will go in the history books if he's expelled, because believe it or not, and I hate to say this, no, um, only only Democrats have ever been expelled before. He'll be the first Republican ever expelled from the House of Representatives if he gets expelled. Well, I mean, Republicans are finally just getting caught up on the corruption of longstanding Democratic <laughs> policies, Ken. I mean, it's, it's apparent. <laughs> I, knew I, was, I was giving you that opening. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I knew you would. I, I couldn't not take it. So I, I appreciate this. Uh, I appreciate the softball. Uh, I got, I got to, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to underhand, I'm going to have to at least swing for it, even if I miss. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I just want to say, listen, that's it for this week's show. And if you're not already a supporter of the politics guys, if you don't already like Ken and myself, we I hope you'll consider becoming one because you get a lot more cool stuff. You actually get more of what, you know, me and Ken, as a matter of fact, what we've been doing for over a year now, and th- this is one of the coolest things we have been doing for the supporters only show. 
a constitution walkthrough. We actually made it all the way through the original text of the constitution. And what we've now been doing is moving on to the amendments, starting with the Bill of Rights. And, and, and we actually started a couple of weeks ago with the First Amendment. And so if you want to be a part of the, that, and not just me, myself and Ken, right? We have the supporter kind of breaking away from the news uh, for listeners from all of our hosts. It's our supporters exclusive midweek show. And it's really, really incredible. As a matter of fact, we're going to be putting those all together into kind of a compilation that you can listen to for supporters. And I'm really excited about that. That's going to be coming out here as we get into the new year. And I'll have some more conversations about with you for that. But for right now, if you'd like to join us, and you, 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 as a matter of fact, you can join us for what we're going to be doing this week in the First Amendment, which is going to be kind of timeless. But you can go all the way back and you can listen to everything all the way through. So how do you do that? Well, you need to become a supporter of the show. And by becoming a supporter of the show, you get things, well, just like that. You get those extras. So how can you figure it out? Well, head to patreon.com slash politics, guys. Again, that's patreon.com slash politics, guys. And you'll see all different kinds of levels of support. Pick your level of support and get your goodies and become a supporter of the politics, guys. There's other ways you can do it as well. You can also support the show on Venmo or at politics, guys. You can support the show through PayPal. All of those support links are in the show notes. And if you like to type it into your web browser, you can always head to politicsguys.com support. And it's not just those supporter-exclusive midweek shows that you get. You're also going to get access to things like our Discord group. We were talking about that earlier in the show where I post and deal with things. Uh, uh, Mike does the same thing. And, and I'd love to be interacting with you there as well. So again, head to patreon.com slash politics guys or on Venmo where we're at politics guys. Or again, all of our support links are right there in the show notes. It's just one easy button press away for you to become a supporter of this very important show. Now, if you'd like to get that midweek show, but you're just not in a position to financially support the podcast right now. Hey, I get that. I've got three kiddos. I know what that's like. Just email us at mail at politicsguys.com and we can get you all set up. And I'd love for you to be a part of that as well. Now, whether you're a supporter or not, it is a really big deal if you can subscribe, rate, and review us on whatever podcast app you use and then share those episodes. Talk to us about them on social media. We're there chatting about it as the Politics Guys all the time at, at Politics Guys on X. So we'd love for you to join us there. Now, if you've got a question, comment, correction, or just anything else you'd like to share, you can, again, always reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Facebook and X, i.e. formerly Twitter. And you can, again, can find all of those links in the show notes. A special thanks, as always, to the executive producers of The Politics Guys, who are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Marino, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, Don Oglesby. We'll be back with a new episode. I hope you'll join us then.